you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to Exodus 19. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right there in front of you probably. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, so just make your way past Genesis and you'll be in Exodus. I promise. <clears throat> if you're wondering what happened to my hand, I was losing a debate. Um, so, no? Okay. Um, I had a follow-up joke, but if that one's not funny, it's unlikely the follow-up one will be too. Okay, they did laugh at the last service. So, um, I'm going to read <coughs> Exodus 19, 1 to 8, and then 16 to 20, or I'm sorry, 16, verse 16 to 20, verse 4, chapter 20, verse 4. And then I'm going to read out of chapter 24. Um, Genesis 19 to 24 is basically an episode. It kind of goes together. And for next week, I'd encourage you to read Exodus 32 through 34. That's kind of an episode, and that's what I'm going to talk about next week. Okay? So Exodus 19, 1 to 8. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, sorry, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and said before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought the answer back to the Lord. Now skip down to the little 16. 1916. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, and then Moses spoke with the voice— Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up the mountain, because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way up, way through, and come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And then God spoke all these words. Ten Commandments, and this is the first one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now flip a couple pages to chapter 24, starting in verse 3. That's the big 24 in the Bible. And the little third, then find the little three. This is what it says. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do. 
Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me, on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. So we're going through this series, the gospel through the Bible. Um, I spent several weeks in Genesis sort of setting things up, the, the whole story of the Bible. And on Easter, I preached on the Exodus, the people coming out of Egypt. And so this is the next major episode, which is the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, and then a lot of other commandments that follow that. And one of the things that people often, um, how they often react to this sort of, this sort of passage is they, they say, really? Like God thundering on the mountain, and then he gives laws, and then we have to be in like subjected religious terror to, you know, to God's big loud voice. I mean, is that really, I mean, is that really how religion or spirituality or whatever is supposed to work? I mean, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be better if we, if we just got past all that and just kind of had like a, like a religion, like a religion of love, you know? Like, it, it's all about love. We all love each other. It's all loving, and, and, it, and love is the whole thing, and we're loving each other, and there's love, and, you know, that'd be great. We wouldn't have to have organized religion. We could just have disorganized religion and love each other, right? And, um, okay, okay, I read you. Um, if, and I think that that's very, I mean, that's, that's what our whole culture would pretty much say, right? And I think one of the things you've got to say is, okay, that, in one sense, that solves one problem, the issue of how to relate to a God that is that sort of big and foreboding. But there's actually a bigger problem that that produces, which is, what on earth do you mean by love? I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this, but love is one of those words that people throw around and they think they're using with, with some kind of agreed-upon definition, but there isn't one. And they just kind of—some people mean kind of nice feelings. Some people kind of mean a storm of emotions that leads towards sexual intimacy. Other people mean—people mean lots of different things. There's at least two major, completely different views on what the word love actually means. Um, and it will be revealed, basically, in how you respond to a question about marriage. Okay? So what does love mean? Okay, there's at least two options. So you're going to write down your answer, okay? So there's just be A and B, and you're going to pick one, okay? So, so marriage. What is marriage, okay? Is it A, okay, so here's A. Does marriage, A, screw up and attempt to possess a wonderful thing called love? Does it screw up and attempt to possess a wonderful thing called love? That is, is marriage a bad institution that hurts good people? 
Is that what it is? Right? Most of America thinks it's that. The marriage rate is— one of the reasons why the divorce rate is going down is because— it's not because we're getting divorced less. It's because the marriage rate is going down. Much fewer people are actually getting married, and so hence the, div- the divorce rate is going down. There's some, there's some neighborhoods in America where the, where, the, where the living together rate is significantly higher than the marriage rate, okay? So, or B, does marriage prove and create a context for the flourishing of love? Does it prove and create a context for the flourishing of love? That is, is it a good institution for the happiness of bad and selfish people? Which is it? You see, how you respond to the institution of marriage will tell you what you think love means. And they are worlds apart. Um, Love is either— because see, it dep- that's a test to see whether or not you inherently think commitment and self-sacrifice is embedded in the concept of love, such that the concept of love is incoherent without them. And love is either the passionate expression of passion, or it is the passionate expression of goodness. That is, it's either the passionate expression of passion from the self to a self— Merely, or it is the passion expression of, of goodness that's related directly to truth. Now think about that. One of the, how does this, you're like, well, wait a second, Nick, you're kind of being, you're kind of being coy here because you're saying like what we think about marriage. How does it, how does marriage, here's why. Here's why, here's why I'm right about the whole thing that's relating to marriage. Because if love is the passionate expression of passion, is a contract possible? Right? It's not, right? Both parties are constantly in flux. It's a passion expression of passion. Passion could be anything, right? Now, the minute you believe that love is the passionate expression of goodness that has a relationship to truth, you're admitting that goodness and truth are objective to you. That is, they're the same for everybody. That is, they're the same for both parties. The minute you believe that, is a contract possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you, you can make a contract on the basis of how people relate to each other in relationship to goodness and how people relate to each other in relationship to truth, no matter what the passionate expression of their desired passions might be. And therefore, you, when, the minute you can have a contract, you can have an institution. The minute you can have an institution, you can have a covenant. And that's what marriage is. You see, it's built on the idea, marriage is built on the idea that love cannot be understood until you define something else before it. You see, part of the misunderstanding is a lot of people believe that love is intuitive, needs no definition, therefore needs no foundation. The Bible completely disagrees with that. That you actually can't know what love is until you define a whole lot of things before it, like commitment, self-sacrifice, truth, justice, compassion, Only when you know what all those things are and they're amalgamated in their proper proportions within a person's outworking of life can you say something is love and that actually means something definite that we can share an understanding about and that has some kind of objective purpose. Then you can have a contract. Then you can have a covenant. Then it can roll. You see, be careful, be careful when you say, Nick, can't we just have love? Because when most people say that, what they want, what they really want is freedom. 
They want to, to send the vectors of their passions wherever they want them to. And that's love, because love is unconstrained, and it's free, and it flies like a dove. And okay, whatever. But listen, once you know what love is, there is nothing in the world more constraining than love. Love is the anti-freedom, by definition. Because it's constrained by and defined by truth and life and commitment and self-sacrifice and honesty and justice and honorability and nobility and truthfulness and on and on and on. And once once you put those things in, love will lock you down like nothing else. Love is, I will take goodness and point it at this thing, person, idea. That's what it means. There's nothing in the world more constraining than true love. That's why the classical definition of love was the commitment of the will to the true good of another, or to widen it out a little bit, the commitment of the whole person to the true good of another. That was true of the Greeks, and you can take that from the Bible. People pretty much knew that, and, but notice what's built into this. It's not just a commitment to the other. It's a commitment to the true good of another. And even, even pe- uh, those of us who can be a little confused about this, you know what it comes out? It comes out whenever we actually do parent. Because whenever you discipline a kid, whenever you engage in parenting, which is like, do this, don't do that, you are essentially choosing between the vectors of your kid's passions and their true good. That's what you're attempting to do. What that means is, on some level, you have to love the true good of a person more than the person themselves in the sense that how they often express themselves is in the vectors of their own passions. A lot of people—me is me expressing my passions passionately. And if you don't like that, then, you know, we can't have a relationship. Well, that's, that's not the way the vast majority of human beings have believed for all of the existence of our species. For the majority of the existence of our species, people believed that there was a true good and that to love another person was to commit yourself to their true good, even sometimes against the passionate expression of their passions. And if you caved to the passionate expression of their passions, you were not loving. So, you know, put that in your parenting pipe and smoke it and so on, right? I mean, like that's— That's love. And so when we recognize that, when we come to the law, the law represents the covenant or the the love relationship between God and his people. That's what the covenant is. That's why God's giving a law. It's not because he's he's giving a law so we can say, do this and don't do that. What he's saying is, he's saying, because you and I are going to have a relationship where we're going to be committed to the true good of each other, I'm going to give a law because you're going to have to know what the true good is. Otherwise, we can't have a relationship that's based on the true good of another, can we? So the reason there's a law isn't just because God wants to give a law so that he can judge you. The reason there's a law is because God is committed to the true good of all things, including your true good and his own true good and the truth. And so the law comes not because the law is its own thing. It's coming because he's creating something else, a covenant, that is, a contractual relationship of love for the true good of all involved. In this case, for the true good of God, for the true good of this people he's choosing for himself, and as we'll see in just a few minutes, for all of humanity, the world, and creation. Okay? So over the next several minutes, um, 
I want to talk about the five purposes of the law. Because the law is all through the Bible. You have to understand what the law is to understand the story. I want to talk about five things that you need to know about the law. The first thing is that you have to know what the law is not for. The law is not for saving you. The law does not exist so that if you live up to it, God will love you. That's not why the law exists. The law exists for other purposes, and if you get too emotionally locked into that, two things will happen. You'll get cynical about religion and faith and think you have Christianity's number when you don't. And you'll say, oh yeah, that's, you know, earning your way to hell, you know, God, you know, I have to obey rules or whatever. That's organized religion. No, that's not organized religion. That's self-salvation, and everybody does that, especially non-religious people. And people think only religious people do it when they're non-religious because that's how we self-justify ourselves, just like religious people think— Irreligious people are whatever, right? But that's, that's not what Christianity teaches at all. That's not what the law is for. And if you get hung up on that, you won't be able to see the other four things. And most Christians, sadly, treat the law this way. The second—now, listen. If you, we want to know what the law is for, one of the things that we could do is we could listen to God explicitly tell us what the law is for. How about that? You, right? That's what most of us want when we talk, right? For people to listen to what we—don't you hate it when you say something like in explicit English sentences and somebody acts like you said the opposite? And you're like, dude, I, 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 I spoke in an intelligible English sentence. I don't know what to tell you. Do you think I was being ironic or something? I mean, God ex- explicitly—this is why we read chapter 19. It comes right before chapter 20. There's a shocker, right? Bef- instead of just reading the law, read the chapter right before it to find out why we got the law. That could be helpful. And he says explicitly why, right? And one of them is so that he could make this people and through this people, this people, his treasured possession. Right? That's what it says in verses 4 and 5 in Exodus 19. You have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Now, notice back to point one, carried you on eagle's wings. That sounds like they did a lot of work, right? You see, God has already saved them. And so now he's already saved them. He's already delivered them. He's already brought them into a relationship with himself. And so now why does he give them a law? And the reason he says, the reason he's making a covenant with them, which then dictates that he'd give them a law, is I want you to be my treasured possession. Now the commentators get a little funny on how to translate that Hebrew word exactly. Some of them, if you read some biblical translations, it will say my own possession. That is, the idea is possession. Like, we belong to each other and you belong to me. That, that would be good enough news, right? But a number of um, uses in the Old Testament, it actually takes on the idea of treasure. That is, it's a subgroup of delight of all the things you own. So think about it this way. If you think of everything that you own, right, and you had to run out of a burning house, what would you grab, right? Or like, what of the things you own, if you could only have two things, and you could only pick based on sentimental value, not on economic worth, what would you pick? Right? We probably picked the kids, right, baby? So, um, just checking. Um, so, you see, the idea is, is that there, there's a sub, there are, there's everything, and then there's a subset that is your person, what you personally, emotionally treasure, right? And the law is given for that purpose, so that we could be God's treasure. Now, listen, okay, so prepare to be offended for the next five minutes, Okay? 
Right? Okay. Were we all ready? Okay. The Bible does not say God's love is unconditional. It doesn't say it. Read the whole—you read the whole thing. I'll just tell you beforehand, it does not say that. Okay? You can say God's love is unconditional if you mean one of two things. One, God's love is universally offered. That is, God is offered to every person righteousness through Christ and through Christ to bring them into his love fully as adopted children such that anybody who will can come. Therefore, his love is offered universally. Therefore, it is unconditional in the sense that it's universally accessible. That's true. Okay? Or you can mean it as an exaggeration. That is, the Bible refers to God's love as extremely long-suffering, right? So you can have the wife of a terrible husband, and he's really, really awful. And everybody thinks she should have stayed one year, and she stays like 37, but she does finally leave the guy. Let's just stipulate for biblical reasons in this category. But you see that—I mean, she stays 35 times longer than anybody would think. Anybody thinks is reasonable. But ultimately, she's like, you know what? I'm leaving. In some sense—I mean, there's a point in the Bible where God says, I've divorced you, Israel, right? To the minor prophets. That's why they go into exile. God divorces them, right? But how long did he—how long did he stick with them for? Well, half a millennia. Like 500 years, right? How long before he killed the Canaanites? Right? He tells Abraham, I'm not ready to kill the Canaanites yet. You're going to go down into Egypt. I'm sending you on like a detour for a while. How long is that detour exactly? About 500 years. You see, so biblically speaking, is God's love unconditional in the sense that he'll take anything from anybody for however long? No, no. Otherwise, there would be no doctrine of hell. And there is in the Bible. No, what it says is God is so long-suffering. He, he, will, he will wait, and he will wait so far beyond anything you could consider reasonable because his mercy outstrips ours so far. But it has an end. In every passage in the Bible, it has an end. So if when you say God's love is unconditional, that's what you mean. That it's so long-suffering, it seems like it's un- completely unconditional. Fine, you can say that. It's fine. But it's false, technically. You see, because God is interested, and here, here's why. I, there was a, a couple years ago, I was in Florida, and I was sitting down with a family, and, and they were an older couple. They were, they, their kids were out of the house, their kids had kids, um, and their daughters were just not living beautifully. Let me just say it that way. And the wife said to me, she said, she said, Nick, okay, so what, what brought this about was the, the older daughter had married a guy run around on him, had a child, and ultimately divorced him. And, and she and her husband, the, the parents, had basically taken the guy's side. They were like, listen, just because you're our daughter doesn't mean we're going to say that he's a jerk because you want to throw his name and mud in his name in court. I mean, you ran around on him. You were awful. He's a pretty good guy. Like, what are you doing, right? And so, and the daughter's response was, well, fine. You'll never talk to your other daughter again because I will poison her against you. You'll never see your grandchild again, and I will throw your name under the bus all over town, small southern town, right? And she looked at me and she said, Nick, why is this so hard for me? Because I just, I feel so torn. I mean, I mean, I've had friends who said, you just, you always go with your daughter. You always go with your kid, you, no matter what they do. And she's like, I just, I didn't feel like I could do that. I just, I don't know, but I, but I can't see my granddaughter. It's tearing me up inside. And I said, of course it's tearing you up inside. Because you have two loves, and she has made you choose between them. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, I said, because you love the truth. 
And you love what's true and right and good And you love her And she has chosen to tear your heart apart By asking you to choose one of them And ultimately your loves are actually rightly aligned You love the truth more than her And that's what's destroying you And she said I know that may sound really insensitive But you know what her response was? That is so helpful The reason God gives us the law So that we can become his treasured possession Is because he wants us to become His treasured possession There there are reasons we treasure things And if you love somebody What's one of the things you want to do? You want to do things that cause them To naturally, emotionally treasure you 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 don't go, "Let let me just think How I can make it as hard as possible For this person to treasure me That's generally not what you do You figure out what they treasure And you conform to it You're like, I want to be that And listen, in some earthly relationships That can be very emotionally unhealthy, right? But not when the the lover Is completely emotionally healthy, righteous, and good When the lover is God And everything that he commands For us to conform to so that he can delight in Is perfect, true, righteous, good, and holy Completely wholesome Completely beautiful Then conforming to it is not in any way emotionally unhealthy It's simply becoming what we were meant to be And we would not know it If he hadn't told us Now you might say Well that's still a little self-centered to God Because I mean he wants us to conform to his stuff But he doesn't want to conform to ours No, 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 he already did What was the deepest heart passion of the Israelites? To be free They were slaves They wanted to be free That was what they cried out to God for It says that in the early parts of Exodus They cried out to God And he heard them And he sent Moses And he sent the plagues And he lifted them out of Egypt On eagle's wings Meaning he did all the work He carried them He did everything To give them the desire of their heart Their freedom But you know what? Their freedom was too small a love Because when he took them out of Egypt And he brought them to Sinai He was meaning to give them An even better love Because what should be a greater treasure to the creature Than for God to make us his treasured possession And for him to then become our treasured possession To to bring them into a relationship with himself To give them a promised land To give them a hope and a future To give them part of redemptive history To make them a holy nation To make them a kingdom of priests That was a much greater thing that their hearts couldn't even come up with And yet he still gave them that He loved them far first Far beyond And then offered them the structure in which they could know what it would mean to become his treasured possession. And all the law is, is how to live justly. That's all it is. Second thing, or the third thing, right? It's the third thing. Is he, he gives them the law to make them a holy nation. The the word holy is a kind of, we use it as a religious word, but it essentially means separate. It's set out for something in particular, something that it was made for, or that it's set aside for. And so he's saying that these guys are to be a people set apart to God. That is, that they're supposed to live in relationship to him and him alone, that he's supposed to be God first to them, right? It's the first commandment. You're going to be mine, so don't have any other gods before me. Um, and one of the things to know is that the holiness that they're supposed to exhibit is, 
in, is put on them individually in that most of the laws of the law are things that we individually live up to. But he says that they're to do it as a nation. They're supposed to do it together. Because you can make a choice to, li- to individually obey a particular law. But the only way a world sees it if, is if a whole mass of people do it together at the same time, right? That's the only way, that's the only way it happens. And it's a very unscientific process, but people usually make decisions in a, with a series of anecdotes. How many not idiot Christians do they have to meet before they'll find the gospel plausible? How many Christian marriages that are functioning really well does somebody have to interact with before they don't think that that marriage is an outlier? They think that it actually can be a normal experience in Christ. How many Christians do they have to see parent that are both nurturing and loving, teaching and disciplinary, and they bring those together beautifully just like the gospel does? How many of those parents do people have to see before they can believe, I can bring a child into this world. Yeah, it's a crazy world, but it's that the crazy world does not dictate who my children will be. This world needs a gift, and I will release children into this world who will be warriors and heroes for its good. See, it's a, I, mean, I felt that way. I remember being 21, just married, feeling that way. How do you bring a child in this world? And then I realized I was being a coward, and I didn't believe, I didn't believe that the gospel was powerful enough to build children ready and willing and able to go out into a world. The world, for most of the, the history of human beings, has been much worse than ours. Much more dangerous, much more bloody, much more volatile, much more uncertain. Financially, militarily, in every way possible. Health-wise, But people still released another generation to heal it and to work in it, to do the calling of Adam, right? And when you, when you read the law, one of of the things that will happen is you'll be offended by it because there are things in the Torah that will make you angry, like regulation of slavery, some things like that. And you'll read that and you'll be like, oh my, that's, I don't like this. How is this perfect and just and good and holy? Well, one of the things you need to realize is this, this law is not given in Genesis 1, right? In, in Genesis 1 and 2, after he creates people and everything's perfect, guess what they don't have? A law. There's no law. They just obey God. After disobedience comes, and after people bring it all down about there, God comes in, and instead of giving them the ideal heavenly law, he, get, he moves them. He puts in eternal principles that they will be on trajectory on for hundreds of years that will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. But he puts in certain concessions within the sociological structures that they're in. But you can see those, and usually they're pretty obvious. But then there are other things where he's totally out of line with culture and moving things way forward. And then other things he puts in certain universal principles. And you can see those work out in the teachings of Christ. And in some things in the teachings of Christ, he says, you've heard it said this, but now it's this. Right? He's, what's he saying? He's saying that was a divine concession, but now we're here, and you should be able to get here now. Divorce, for example, right? They go and say, Jesus, I mean, it says in the law, we can divorce our wives for whatever, if we don't like them. And, and Jesus is like, well, well, first of all, you totally misinterpreted that. But even in the right interpretation of that, the purpose of that law, he says, was because your hearts were hard. What does that mean? Socioculturally, personally, whatever, they just weren't able to accept that. So God gave up a divine concession. But within the Torah, there are tons of things that are huge steps forward. For example, most people don't know that Israel was the first nation in the history of the recorded world where women could inherit things. First culture in the history of the recorded world where adultery was a crime for men. 
and bore the same penalty as that for women. One of the first cultures in the world in which there was a significant tax on the goods of people that was not used to enrich a king, but was distributed to the poor and for the maintenance of the temple, which everybody had equal access to. About 23%. If you add in the every three-year tax plus the 10% tithe, you put it together, it's about 23%, but it didn't go to the king. There was no king. It went to the temple and then was distributed to the poor. So, so much did God work this out within these divine concessions. He says, listen, if you obey this law, he says this in Deuteronomy 15, if you obey this law, there won't be poor among you. Now think about what the law is for. Because what did Jesus say about the poor? Well, he said a lot of things about the poor. But what did he say about about the poor existing among us? You remember? He said, you will what? Always have the poor among you. That doesn't sound right, does it? Why would God say in Deuteronomy 15, if you do this, there will be no poor, and Jesus will say, you will always have the poor among you? What was Jesus implicitly saying? That that poverty has to exist? No, he's saying it will empirically always exist. He's not saying ethically or, or scientifically it must. What he's saying is, you will never obey the law! Ever! You'll never do it! And because of that, there will always be people in poverty. Because you as a race of humans, and of course, what's the the next thing out of Jesus' body is his own blood to save those people. Because they need redemption. Why? Because poverty isn't necessary. It isn't. But it will always be here. Why? Because we will never, ever do the law. Ever. But yet God looks us in the eye and says, I've called you to be a holy nation. And what that means is that you can say all these things we want as Christians or as a church or whatever. Here's the bottom line. If we're Christians, here's what we are. We are people who so want to make God first and foremost that our whole life is a search after and a seeking after and a disciplining towards and a believing into holiness. Really being God's. Living in line with everything we know about his character, being fully given to that, to being as much as we can formed into the image of Christ, into the image of God that we were made in to begin with. I, I know this probably terrifies some of you that such a religious word should be our one goal. Listen, that's what scripture says all the way through that holiness is the, the pursuit of a real believer and of every corporate group of believers or church. And so if you don't like that, you need to take that word holy and take it back into the conceptualizing zone of your thinking and totally rework it and realize that it doesn't mean self-righteousness and it doesn't mean holier than thou and it doesn't mean trying to take power so we're as powerful as God and we can hurt everybody that doesn't believe in us. You need to take all that junk and throw it away and realize holy means set apart to be like Jesus, to be remade in God's likeness, to embrace all that's true, good, and beautiful, to be a hero to a dying world, to be built together in a community that cares about that and will sacrifice selflessly for that to be part of the covenant of love. That's what it means. And then take that word holy and put it back right in the middle of everything that we believe about who Jesus is. That has to happen. And listen, if we do that, we'll be great at evangelism and we'll be great at giving and we'll be great at sending out missionaries. We'll be great at reading our Bibles. We'll be great at worshiping. We'll be great at praying. We'll be great at showing hospitality to others. We'll be great at everything. And if we don't care about that at the very middle, we'll be good at nothing spiritually. The fourth is, he said he wanted to make us a kingdom of priests. 
So track the logic so far. A treasured possession for God. A, sorry, holy nation that is to transform us. And then a kingdom of priests, a people for others. Right, think about it. a kingdom of priests, what is that, right? Priests are always a subset, right? You've got a church, and then you've got a pastor. You've got a church, you've got a priest. You've got a nation of Israel, you've got the sons of Aaron. You've got priests. And he goes, yeah, but I want to make a nation of priests. And you're kind of like, okay, so you've got the sons of Aaron, they're priests. And later on, the Levites all become priests. And then the whole point of all this is to make a nation of priests. Who's everybody priests for? Well, go back to the patriarchs. What was God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Go back to Genesis. Long before this ever happened, what was the promise? The promise was that who was going to be blessed through Abraham? The Jews, right? No, right? No. Who was going to be blessed? All nations, right? Every people on the face of the earth, all nations will be blessed through you. Everyone. You see the idea here? There's the sons of Aaron, there's the Levites, they are priests to the nation of Israel, but then the nation of Israel, or the people of God, become priests to all other peoples. That is, the people that God makes for his own treasured possession goes out into all the world. There are people for others, just as he's a God for others, to draw all people into his treasured possession. Lest you think this is just an Old Testament idea, this is in 1 Peter. So New Testament book written to the church that believes in Jesus, and Peter's helping work this out, right? What does he say? He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That sound familiar? It should. A people belonging to God, that is what? His treasured possession, belonging to God, right? Right? That you may declare the praises of him who called you. What's that? Acting as priests, right? You're declaring the praises of God, Right? And it is wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God, that is, a holy nation. You once had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and, tra- and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, i.e., be holy, right? Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That is, right? Be priests. So, so live as a group together in front of your pagan neighbors that as they anecdotally see more and more and more of you, they go, oh wait, I thought they were closed-minded idiots, but maybe they're just closed-minded, or maybe they're just idiots. Or maybe they're, you know what I mean? Like, there's this progression of like, oh, oh wait. The, the, the life of holiness is the work of the priest, but it also includes the declaration. It's the lifestyle and the declaration makes us a nation of priests. And we can't not be that. And that's one of the purposes of the law, to make us a people that could so live among the pagans that they would turn their hearts to glorify God. Because think about this. We are, the the church is the people of God scattered into the whole world. We're not one nation in one place in the world that nobody could see. We're an exiled people among every nation so that every nation might see what it looks like to be God's treasured possession and a holy people. And when we're doing that, and when we're actively seeking to go out and declare, we're also being a nation of priests. Now there's one last bit to think about here. And this is, the, this is another purpose of the law, and it's an incredibly important purpose of the law. You'll probably think it's not in this passage, but I promise you to just hang with me for a couple minutes. And that is, the purpose of the law is to know ourselves and to drive us to Christ. To know ourselves and to draw us to Christ. 
Let me take you through the clearest New Testament passage on this in Galatians 3, and then we'll come back to Exodus 30, 20, 24. This is what Paul says. He's just been talking about how we're not saved by works or by doing things or by performing good for God, but God gave a promise by believing that promise we're set right with God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not because of our performance, right? And so now he's going to go into the section about where he talks about the law. Well, then what's the law for, right? So this is what he says. For the inheritance, that is, being saved in Christ, depends— for if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise, right? He's saying that was loving of God, to not give it through law, but to give it through a promise. Because when he gave it through a promise, it was just a gift. That was really loving of him to do it that way, right? So he says, what then was the purpose of the law? Great question. That's the whole sermon. I could have just read this. We would have been done minutes ago, right? What is the purpose of the law, right? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Who's the seed? Jesus. Yes, yeah, Sunday school answer. It's not a squirrel, right? Jesus, right? He would come, but between the fall and Jesus, why do we need law? Right? Here's, here's why. Because we're, we're crazy and we don't even know it. Right? It was added because of transgressions. That is, human beings were acting horribly, and part of the fall isn't just our in, in, the bodily effects of the fall, and not just the moral effects of the fall, but what, what theologians call the noetic effects of the fall. It changes the way we think. One of the main ways it changes the way we think is self-justification. We can do anything and talk about how it was, it was perfectly justified. Go to any prison, talk to a bunch of murderers, they will tell you how it, they didn't do it, but if they did do it, it was perfectly justified. Do you know what, do you know the, the psychological classification of active shooters are? People who go into places and shoot lots of people, right? It's not called gun ownership, though that's involved sometimes, but it's, it's called the Avenger Syndrome. The Avenger Syndrome. They all think they're rightly avenging something. That's what they all share in common. I was reading a book recently called How Children Succeed, and it talks about, um, one of the things, there, there are all these like non, non-academic performance character things that, that people need to succeed. And one of them is called the falsification mentality, right? Falsification mentality. That sounds good, right? What's this falsification mentality? It's going around thinking you must be wrong about things and looking for why you're wrong. So in, in terms of chess coaching, right? There's this lady in New York City who's this very well-known chess coach. Her very low-income school wins the chess championship against all the private schools every year. And one thing she's constantly doing with kids is saying, when you made that move that lost you the game, did you think about all the reasons you should make that move, or did you stop and think about all the reasons you shouldn't make that move? And they always think, well, I didn't think. I just thought, I'd do this, then I could do that. And they, and it's what it's called, the opposite of falsification is called confirmation bias. What's confirmation bias? Right? You think something, and then you naturally just look for everything that agrees with you. That's why people only listen to one news source, right? Yeah. Yes is the answer to that question, right? Because then they all, everybody feels better because our brain likes to feel good. And when everything we believe gets confirmed, we all feel better, right? It's called confirmation bias. But then that's how people fail. Because it keeps, it makes them blind to all kinds of things we should know. So falsification is this idea where in our lives we believe things, but we look, we actually are looking more for things that prove us wrong than things that prove us right. And that's in our best interest. It's a, it's, it's sort of a proven scientific thing in psychology that that causes people to succeed as long as they're simultaneously optimistic. Optimistic falsification mentalities tend to lead to success. Which means sin has made us so oblivious to reality that even though falsification is in our best interest, we still will not do it on penalty of death. We are so focused on our self-justification, and the only thing that can cure that, frankly, the only thing that can cure that is law. 
It's law. Somebody has to look you at the face and say, yeah, 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 you're wrong. You're just wrong. Like, confrontation is necessary. I mean, you can listen, you can listen to somebody talk about how bad, my husband is so bad. I'm surely I can connect emotionally with this person at work, and it, I mean, I, I deserve to have love, and I shouldn't be trapped in this, and blah, blah, blah. Unless something, somebody comes in and says, thou shalt not commit adultery. You're wrong. Wrong. Or, I really should have that thing they have. I mean, I've worked just as hard as them. Why didn't I get that promotion? What about this? And how come I'm having trouble finding this job? Or these things are happening to me. I really should have a better life than this. All right. That's a really nice little self-justification you have going there. Thou shalt not covet. You're wrong. The reason you're coveting, and the reason you're committing adultery, and the reason you're lying, and the reason you're— is because you won't obey the first commandment. You will have no other gods before me. If you are God's treasured possession, and he is your treasured possession, coveting is impossible. It's emotionally impossible. But we covet all the time. Why? Because God is in our treasured possession. And so the law calls us back to that. It says, you're wrong about that. You're wrong about that. That's totally unjust. That's lying. That's that. You can't do that. Come back. Repent. Let it go. Say you're wrong. Admit it. Come back and let God be your treasured possession, right? Let me give you a loving example of the law. So, um, I think it's just just, just yesterday. So, I, I don't know if you know this about me. You probably could derive this, but I hate— I hate all games in which outcomes can be determined by luck or chance, okay? So I like pure strategy games. If luck has anything to do with outcomes, I don't like the game. Here's the problem with that. All children's games have those outcomes, okay? All of them. In fact, most of them, they're nothing but that, right? It's like the little thing where you bop the thing and they spin around. Anyway, so we get this this card game called There's a Moose in Your House, which is actually kind of funny. It's, oh, there's a moose in your bedroom. Oh, there's a moose in your— and you, So you're like, you'd be like basically try to put mooses in other people— meese or whatever in other people's houses, right? And so Lexi and I and Jude, and yeah, just the three of us are playing this, this game. And it's high-level high luck, okay? High-level luck game. And so we get to the end of it, and it's whoever has fewer mooses wins. And so, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah, whoever has fewer mooses wins. So like, so Lexi wins. She has five, Jude has six, and I have like seven, right? And so, so we go, oh, mommy won. I go, yep, she won. And then I said, but I, and I, but I played better. And the, the reason I said, objectively speaking, um, there are two kinds of cards you can get in that game, which basically like get, lets you knock a moose out. Like there's a door that closes your room so you can't get a moose, and there's like a moose trap where you can just get rid of one. And she got three of those cards. I got none. She won by two. She had an advantage of three. I have objectively played better, right? And so she says to me, the audacity, right? She goes, she goes, quit being a sore loser <laughs> in front of the kids, right? So I'm just like, oh, what I said was totally right. And so I'm just kind of sitting there, and you know that feeling comes over you. We call it conviction in Christianity. You're kind of like, you know what, you really, you really are wrong. Like, but see, the, the funny thing about it is the self-justification is still there, Right? It's still there. And the self-justification is amping up while you're feeling that conviction, right? You ever had this? Have any? Any kind of self-awareness or caring about what's right, and you will know this. So the self—the the conviction comes in. The first thing that happens is the self-justification starts to amp. But what doesn't go away? Quit being a sore loser. The law. The law. The law. The law. Justification. Justification. The law. And at some point, you submit to the law or you don't. And it wasn't like she was nice about it. And she's just kind of like, you probably shouldn't say it quite like that. 
She just basically said, don't be a sore loser, which means if I repent, what do I have to actually do? I have to come out and say, I'm sorry, I was a sore loser. And it's like a six-year-old, right? So I sat there for, you know, an hour and 20 minutes. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it wasn't quite that long. If I were to, and then I just, I walked over, I was like, okay. I'm, I was a sore loser. I'm really sorry. I was a sore loser. And she goes, okay, that's okay. Yeah. Now you're peppy and positive, right? Yeah. So, but you see, now listen, if you have any sense of the gospel, you'll see how loving that is. So loving. The law is so important. The law tells you what you are. It slaps you in the face. It knees you in the stomach. It, it, it doesn't let you go. It won't, it won't let you move further and further into delusion because the road to delusion is the road to damnation. Because what's the road to damnation? Is the road to damnation more sin in Christian faith? It's not, is it? It's more unrepentantness. It's hardness that's the road to damnation, isn't it? And so anything that breaks you off of the road to hardness is loving. You see, the law condemns the amount of sin you have, but that's not what's holding you back from God. That's not what's keeping you from being transformed. That's not what's, what's keeping you from Jesus. That's not what's keeping you from what you need. It's not the amount of sin. Who cares if the law comes in and pronounces you guilty? That's what it's supposed to do. That's what you need. That's what will help us. Because it, it leads to the moment where you go, oh, you're right. I am that. And in that moment where it tells you who you are, you have the moment to flee to Jesus to flee to what God has prepared to save, right? And that brings us back to this passage, right? How did 24 end that section? He, it says that Moses put up an altar. They made sacrifices. Half the blood they put in bowls. Half the blood they threw on the altar. They, then they took the other blood and sprinkled it on the people, right? What does that stand for? We see the sacrifice of blood thrown on the altar was atonement, it put away sin. It's the burnt offering. It put away sin and allowed people to access God, right? And then this, the blood of the covenant that was sprinkled on that's a little weird, right? right? But what does it represent? The seriousness. And a lot of Bible scholars also believe it represents penalty. That is, this is the penalty for breaking this law. Your blood, you're going to die, right? But what happens right after that? You remember what God said in chapter 19 three times to make sure the Israelites could never, ever do? Remember he said, I know I told you, Moses, not to let them come to the mountain, but go back down and make sure, tell them again three times. He sends Moses back down and make sure nobody approaches the mountain. Because if he does, God's holiness would break out against them and kill them. But what happens right after this? The four guys and the elders go up the mountain. They see God. And it says, they eat and drink. Isn't that kind of weird? They eat and drink, which is a mark of fellowship, right? They're eating and drinking with God. Right? Now, now think about this. When Jesus in Luke's gospel institutes what we call the Lord's Supper or communion, what does he say? He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. That phrase is only used twice in the whole Bible. Here and there. The very next thing he does is he goes to the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. The result being that we can approach the mountain of God's holiness, being remade into the truths of the law, so that we can forever be God's treasured possession. We can be made into a holy nation, and we can be sent out as a kingdom of priests. 
having been told by the law what we really are, and that causing us to flee to Jesus. The sacrifice thrown against the altar to purchase our sinful right to walk up to the sapphire, sapphire gloried, glowing feet of the king and be in his presence and eat and drink, not for one day, but forever. Be careful about asking for just a religion of love, because if you come to Christian faith, that's what you're going to get. And love is the most glorifyingly constraining thing in the world. But what it will liberate you from, like it liberated the Israelites from the bondage in Egypt, is it will, li- it will liberate you from the self-prison of damnation. Of the lies and self-justification we tell ourselves. Of the rejection of the truth the law wants to speak to us. Of the prison that keeps us from the freedom of being pronounced wicked and judged and lost. And keeping us from ever fleeing to Jesus and ever being really free. Changed, transformed, treasured. Holy priests to all peoples of the world. That freedom is the freedom we need. And that freedom only comes from the second greater mediator, who isn't Moses, but who Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy, the prophet that would come after him, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, The metaphors that you use with ancient people, like blood being sprinkled on people, is, is not the ones that we use. But it is jarring to us, and it's stirring, and we pray that it's as stirring as the judgment of the law. That you would, you would access our hearts and confront us in ways that are incredibly loving, that'll bring us back to you, that will create intimacy, real openness, real love between us. So we pray that you would give us the true religion of love, that you would, that you would give us that thing, that, and we would recognize that it's, it's a thing of covenant. It's a thing of law. It's a thing of truth. It is a love that is not just em- of empty categories of passion seeking to be passionate, but is, is, a, it is a holder that holds within it the right relationship between love and truth and justice and goodness and all of these things, that it would be holy love that we would experience. And that it would well in us a deeper, stronger, and more powerful passion that we have ever yet felt. And that when that passion vectors out from our hearts with power, it wouldn't go out and destroy the lives of others through our selfishness, but it would go out and heal and touch and create joy and redemption among those closest to us and among all people. And we pray that you would make us together a people that enjoy being your treasured possession that are seeking holiness as our heart's main purpose and that are a people for others as a kingdom of priests. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.